in the middle. And what a finish that is. Mason Mounts. That is extraordinary from Fikayo Tomori. This is Callum Hunt to the door. And there it is. His first goal. For Chelsea, the teenager, a moment he will remember. Hello and welcome back to the Chelsea Spot Podcast. You can find all our links in the description, including Spotify, iTunes, our website. Make sure to go and follow us on Twitter and Instagram if you haven't already. We are recording on Monday evening after an absolutely crazy weekend of football. Um, some some incredible games, Tottenham, Spur, Tottenham Man U, Liverpool, Aston Villa. Um, but today we're doing something slightly different. Um, today I've delighted to have a really special guest on whose uh, brains I can pick. Um, today's guest is counted on a list of the top 100 referees all time by the International Federation of Football History and Statistics. He refereed the 100th ever FA Cup final um, in 1981, aged only 36. He was a ref at the 1988 Euros and Olympics. He refereed in the first two seasons of the Premier League before retiring as a ref in 1994. But after that, he also became the boss of the PGA MOL, the professional game Match Officials Limited, the body responsible for match officials in English professional football. And to this date, he's still one of only three people who have ever held that prestigious post. So without any further ado, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Keith Hackett to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me, Keith. Pleasure. Delighted to be on. Brilliant. So over the course of, of this discussion, I'd like to get some insight into your career, both as an on-pitch ref and um, while you're at PGMOL, then we'll discuss some of the more kind of um, topical things that have been widely discussed in the media recently, like the, the current handball and some other stuff like that. I hope that's all right. Yeah, for sure. Anything. Ask me anything. Really? <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So first of all, this is primarily a Chelsea podcast. Most of the stuff we'll be talking about today hasn't got much to do with Chelsea. But um, I'll get the Chelsea question out of the way first. I wanted to ask you if you have any me- memories of refing Chelsea, any stories, anything like that? I think uh, for me, being based in Sheffield in the north as a football league referee prior to the Premier League starting, um, we were zoned. So most of my refereeing was tended to be in the the early years in the north and you know northwest northeast yeah. into the midlands and a trip to london was always something special because you could make that uh, almost a weekend and uh, i certainly enjoyed uh, refereeing at stamford bridge um, some great players great managers um, lucky to be on the field of some of those um, you know, I, su- I suppose around that, you know, I was on the list from 72. I became a, f- a football league middle referee in, in round about 1975 and then carried through to 95. So 20, 23 years on the football league of Premier League, 10 years on FIFA. And what you saw in, in, with regard to Chelsea, was that there were always a team that liked to play with style and flair. And, uh, you know, I always used to have the opportunity of, or take the opportunity, really, of, of walking down King's Road and, and just soaking in the atmosphere. Yeah. People, did, people didn't know me. We weren't television stars then. Uh, so you could toast, just get to grips with the atmosphere of the fans. And, and for me... <clears throat> 
I think it was fans that made Chelsea. There were lots of good players. Um, you know, uh, I, what epitomised Chelsea in round about 79-80 was Mickey Droy because, mm. I, I, you know, it was a, it was a class act as a centre-half. Uh, he, he had this thou shalt not pass attitude <laughs> and, um, and just hated losing or, or even looking like losing. So he wasn't slow in sort of having a go at me, the referee, and uh, and having a go at the players around him <laughs> uh, if if he didn't think they were trying, and and therefore I think there was some synergy between him and uh, and the spectators, and then of course through that period uh, later on, uh, we suddenly saw the in- the influence of the Russian oligarch come into Chelsea. Yeah. And uh, he clearly had a passion for the club. You know, yeah, he's a very wealthy guy, but I, I think we failed to forget that, you know, he brought, he brought players forward um, that are just fantastic. You know, um, Frank Lampard, um, you know, great player and, yeah. uh, and just a human dynamo. And, you know, I think it's great to see him now managing the club uh, and knowing his, his ethics in terms of work rate, the players will know that they've got to work pretty hard for him. Uh, but John Terry, um, again, I'm going Mickey Droy. And I'm go- you know, they've always seemed to have good number fives. And, uh, and John Terry was hard work. Yeah. You know, he, he if... If you made the slightest of errors, he would he would have a go. Um, but I tell you a story about uh, John Terry. Uh, I was with my grandchildren in Portugal, and uh, we were eating in a fairly Swiss restaurant. And there, in the corner, was John Terry, and I think members of his family having something to eat. And my grandchildren just wanted his autograph, instantly recognisable, and. <laughs> And we sort of said, look, just just let him finish what he's eating, please, to the kids. Yeah. And so they, they just like England captain and, you know, a, a guy instantly recognised. And eventually he finished his food. And then uh, my daughter-in-law decided to go up and, and just sort of say, look, the kids would really love a photograph with you and an autograph. And he was just absolutely fantastic. Um, I didn't introduce myself to him. I just walked uh, away from the the restaurant to the car park, which was probably about 200 yards away. And the next thing I saw was John Terry driving a golf cart with my grandkids on board. (laughs) So so they didn't have have to walk from the restaurant to uh, to the car park. And they... That was the holiday for them. If you said, do you remember that holiday in Portugal? They'd go, yeah, Frank Lampard. Uh, sorry, John Terry driving us in the thing. Uh, Frank Lampard, uh, I was out in America. Uh, I, in the early 80s, I refereed on the North American Soccer League. So I have strong links with American football. And um, we just, Mark Elsie and I had just done a, a sort of... Uh, in interview and a series of lectures for 
uh, referees in, in the States. And we decided that we'd go and watch uh, LA play. And, uh, and Lampard was playing. What I didn't know was that Mark Alsey had refereed Lampard's testimonial. Um, and and uh, one of the, a gift that he received, and I think all the players received for that testimonial, was an iPad. And Mark's got it with him and just shows it me and then says, I'm going to have a word with Frank Lampard. And, and we had a Chelsea fan in America, an American Chelsea fan, and we were in Washington State, and and this guy, we said to him, look, we're going to. He, he took us to the game. He paid, and he he was really quite kind to us. And uh, Lampard was his hero. And and there, after the match, Mark Kelsey had arranged for Frank Lampard to meet him. And I've never seen a grown man unable to say anything. He was absolutely. <laughs> This, 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 this American was absolutely stunned that he, and he, he just, he was gobsmacked. He was just looking at, at, at Lampard. Lampard was brilliant with it. So I think the story's off the field of play because I think that in those two players, I can understand why with Mickey Droy, that connection of the, of the modern player having with the fans, you know, and um, all too often now we see, for all sorts of reasons, players getting off the coach, kids standing around, and they're wearing the headphones and go straight past. Um, I suggest that that would be unlikely when Lampard and uh, Terry were playing, and they draw the people into that requirement of having that association with, with the fans. So it's, it's great to see him back managing the team um as i say his passion will drive because he's got a winning mentality doesn't yeah. like losing does not like losing and i don't think he's short of being able to on the outside and visibly he might look uh, fairly quiet in his approach articulate but I think behind the scenes, if he needs to get a message across, I think that will oh, come across. <laughs> yeah. I think that will come across quite uh, quite hard. So that's my connection with Chelsea. Interesting. Not so much, not so much uh, refereeing, but just three players that I bring to mind. There are many others, but those three players um, I admire because of their connection with the fans. Mm, that's great. That's really nice to hear, especially as a as a fan myself. You know that connection that the players have always had and I'm sure they, they still do have today. Mm. Um, mentioning the the kind of role model figures in Lampard, Terry, I think we've got a fantastic captain now in Azpilicueta who's just the same yes. with all yeah. the fans. I really, really like him. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, aside from Chelsea now, um, I want to start um, kind of um, asking you about your career and We'll start at the start of your career. First, wanted to ask you how and why did you start refereeing? Because, you know, it, it may not necessarily be something that all kids dream of doing. Um, I should yeah, make it clear first. Most listeners of the podcast will probably already know this, but I myself am a, a grassroots referee here in London. Um, Brilliant. Yeah, I'm quite ambitious. So I, I'm really looking forward to to hearing the the tale of your career to to uh, help me to learn, really. But yeah, um how and why did you did you start refereeing, Keith? 
Well, I, I, I was a player with a junior club in Sheffield, a grassroots club. And, and around 1960, the, the idea was that the county FA decided that most teams had to put one representative forward to get to know a little bit about refereeing. I think they were trying to build a better relationship between referees and players. Mm. And, I, and I went on this course. It was six evenings. Um, I found it enjoyable, learning the laws of the game. Lots of things I didn't know. Um, with no intention, might add, to referee. And then I got back to playing. I wasn't a great player, but I enjoyed playing. And then uh, one particular weekend, we, we didn't have a game. And I got a call from the county FA saying, um, we've appointed you you to referee Hillsborough Boys Club versus Sheffield United Juniors. And the phone went down. The phone went down. That, that's what I didn't have a chance to say, no, no, no. So I then, uh, not wanting to let anybody down, uh, borrowed, a, borrowed a referee shirt from a, a local referee. Uh, it was, it, you know, I wasn't that big then, but it was a pretty big shirt. <laughs> Uh, it had uh, it was made of terrelene and the cuffs and the shirt collar white were detachable mm. and, um, and and I can remember catching the bus I didn't have a car catch the bus to this school playing field at intake which is on the outskirts of Sheffield walked on the pitch nervous as hell and refereed a football match and um, and afterwards a guy called Len Swallow, who had connections with the Sheffield United junior team, came up and complimented me. What I didn't know was that his son was, in fact, then a football league linesman, assistant referee, as they're named now. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I found that I thoroughly enjoyed refereeing, and, and that was it. I'd suddenly caught a bug, and it is a bug, and then I just went on a roll with people would ring up and say, will you referee this match? All the leagues, because in Sheffield, in South York, in Sheffield in particular, you, you're not selected for a league. You actually referee all the leagues uh, within within the grassroots level. I did that for 12 years, uh, wow. averaging 100 games um, a season. And in between, on a Wednesdays, uh, refereeing five-a-side football because five-a-side football helps to keep you mentally stimulated because you've got to make quick decisions. Mm. There's no, no physicality about it, but there is mental, uh, 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 if you like, opportunities to actually speeden up your decision-making process. And so I progressed from the Yorkshire League uh, and then they announced the opening of a Northern Premier League, and I was on the linesman's list to begin with. This meant that I was going to Mattlesfield, I was going to Wigan Athletic, Altrincham, Boston United. Uh, and when I tell you that people, some of the players, like Boston United was managed by Jim Smith, who went on to manage Derby and, and many other clubs before he passed. And he was the manager of Boston United, but he also played. Uh, so you can imagine, all of a sudden, it, this was a different game because they were playing for money. And and the atmosphere was different. Spectators, two or three hundred, uh, sometimes five hundred, sometimes a thousand. So 
you get conditioned to being able to referee in front of spectators because what happens initially is you can get distracted distracted by the negativity that comes from them mm -hmm. distracted because they can actually con you into thinking that you've missed something when actually nothing took place so so you've got to be sharp you've got yeah. to be sharp you've got to be quick and of course you've got to be quick with players so you learn you learn to communicate uh, you learn to get yourself out of problems quickly until I got the call to be to referee on the football league. Um, I was a linesman first. And then that first game, I remember going to Stockport County against Northampton. And, uh, you know, you've got your badge. You're proud to wear it. And then, then the role begins. You know, you, you, you're training harder and you have to understand that I was a sales manager. I was refereeing on the Northern Premier League. I was refereeing the Football League, but I was also refereeing grassroots football. So throughout my career, you know, I, ref I might referee West Germany against, or Germany against Italy midweek in a Nations League game, but on a Sunday, the same guys rolling out to referee Blackpool Taverners against the Angel Pubs. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I mean, uh, I, I can remember I'd, I'd been on the FIFA panel, I'll tell a story, because I'll go along and I'll ebb and flow with sure. you. So uh, one particular Sunday morning, I was refereeing a couple of teams and stood at the side, no linesman, Still at the side of the pitch was a guy in a gabardine coat, trench coat, and he occasionally kept making notes. And I thought, cracky, who's he? He must be an assessor. And um, one of the players called me something that was a bit unseemly, and I pulled him to one side and didn't give him a red card. I, I, I just gave him a bit of a ticking off. And uh, the one thing to remember is that, uh, you know, um, Red and yellow cards came in in 1970. So I'd, I'd been refereeing for 10 years without red and yellow cards. But right. anyhow, so on a Sunday morning, this guy, the game's over. I, I could have sent the player off. Let, let's make no mistake because yeah. it, was, it was verbal and it, people could hear it. But I decided to be fairly lenient. And um, at the end of the game, this guy came up to me. I'd been an international referee for about six years. Um, Real Madrid, Juve, Gdans, various clubs. And uh, he came up and said, Oh, could I have your name? And I've gone, Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be suspended. I'm going to be suspended here. Uh, I've, I've obviously said something out of turn. I've, I've said too much. He said too much. I've allowed too much. And uh, so I gave him my name and and I think this is not an ego thing, by the way. I've gone Keith Hackett. I've got a FIFA badge on, by the way, on my shirt. Mm. Nothing. And I think, like, he's obviously been very serious. Right? So he's taken my name, taken my address, got my phone number. And then I suddenly plucked up courage to say, excuse me, could you tell me why you want my name? 
He said, yeah, I've watched your referee a bit here. He said, um, I think you ought to be refereeing at a higher level. <laughs> <laughs> so the worry bit, the worry bit was answered by that question. Yeah. So the Football League saw me going to Anfield, Old Trafford, Newcastle, Blackburn. Um, and at that time, remember that we were amateurs in a professional game. Mm. And we were we were on the Football League list, which meant that one week you could be doing a first division. You know, two weeks later, it could be a division four. You never, because you, you weren't, and did the fees differ for those? The fee was the same. Right. Fee was the term. Uh, it was probably about 20-odd pounds. Mm. And the reason I can make that observation is because for the FA Cup final in 81, you're told before the game, right, you've got a choice to make. <clears throat> is it the £35 fee or the gold medal? <laughs> it's a no-brainer, isn't it? But um, so, you know, I mean, I can remember my first game at Anfield uh, after about three or four minutes. Uh, Emily News had put in a, a fairly fierce challenge. He knew that this was my first game at Anfield. So I bring him to me, to me and I sort of said, right, OK. And just quieten down, calm down. Don't want to see that challenge, that type of challenge. And he had a real go at me. He really like to OTT. So I've gone, right, going to caution you. What's your name? He goes, what? I'm going to yell a card you. I want your name. You know me name. I'm the England captain. You know, have you not seen me on Question of Sport? And I've gone... You have to understand, this is my first visit to Anfield. I don't know who you are. What did you say? Oh, I know. You're Hemling Hughes. H-E-M-L-I-N-G. And I'm <laughs> saying it, <coughs> I'm saying it as I sort of pretend to write it in my book. <laughs> and of course, it then says to me, my name's not Hemling. My name's Emily. Emily Hughes. That's all I wanted, your name. Thank you. <laughs> and it's funny because uh, prior to his death, several years prior to his death, uh, I would referee games in Sheffield for charity. Uh, he played for a local junior team, by the way. He lived, he lived in Sheffield or just on the outskirts. So mm. I, could, I would come across him fairly frequently and... Uh, I might bump into him, into him at a local game, and he'd always chat, and he'd always remember that that particular <laughs> thing because he'd go, "You know my name, Hemling," and then he'd tell other people the same story. So the the football league was a great challenge. It was a great place to be, uh, you know. And I suppose you can you can there's people like Rodney Marsh and. The, the great players, Georgie Best, uh, Tony Curry, um, Malcolm McDonald, Ian Wright, you know, Gary Lineker, all, all in that era, mm. were playing regularly uh, and, and playing brilliantly and entertaining. And as a referee, I just loved it. 
Um, and I was getting pretty big games early on. And they were going reasonably well. Until uh, in 1979, I got a phone call to say, uh, you've been appointed to referee the FA Cup semi-final. Uh, Liverpool v that club on the other side of London, Arsenal. And uh, and it was at Hillsborough. And, and I'm a Sheffield Wednesday fan. So as a kid, I would walk from my house, a terraced house with my dad, the three miles to the ground. On the way, my dad would stop at the pub and I would have an orange juice and a packet of crisps and he'd have... If he was early enough, he'd have two or three pints and might scramble a fourth. Uh, he was a steel worker. And when you got to Hillsborough, we always stood, at the, I stood at the front of the cot, but it was a, a, a big cot with lots of spectators. And I used, they used to get to the top, they'd lift you up, and then you'd surf over the heads of the spectators who just, wow. like, till you got to the front. And, uh, and my hero then for Sheffield Wednesday was uh, Derek Dooley. So what happened was I, having been appointed to Hillsborough, uh, where I used to live, which was terraced housing, had been raised to the ground. And they were now just open wasteland, really. But nonetheless, I had a fairly plush company car. And so I was a sales manager and drove to where I used to live, parked the car, got my bag out of the car. Remember, I'm wearing a, ba a blazer with an FA badge on and walked the three miles to the ground. And I didn't stop at the pub on the way. I was tempted, but I didn't. <laughs> there were a few fans who knew me, they recognised me, uh, saying, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to Hillsborough. You are? I'm going to Hillsborough. Little did they know that I was going to referee that football match. I refereed the match. Uh, it was a 1-1 draw. And uh, the FA guy came in and said, right, what's your fee? What's your expenses? And uh, I said, note, which is a Yorkshire term for nothing. Yeah. The guy looked at me and I go, no, I don't want anything. Why? I'm just honoured to referee Aylesbury. So in a sense, that uh, that was a, a, a match which was went to a replay, and I refereed the replay, still didn't get a result because the replay was a draw, and then I was taken off the game for another referee because that's how it, it used to happen. Um, and uh, at that year, I also ran the line at the FA Cup final between Arsenal and Manchester United. Uh, and then, of course, in 81, I refereed um, the FA Cup final, the 100s, between Spurs and Manchester City. Um, I refereed the first game. The clubs, the teams were filling each other out. Still a challenging match for me. Um I didn't know then what I'd get the replay. Uh, and as I walked up the steps to be greeted by the Queen Mother, I'm thinking, I'm a good, if, if I get a medal, uh, I'm not going to get the replay. She did give me the medal. I, I burst almost in a big huge smile because of that. I knew that the following Thursday I'd be refereeing the, uh, the second part. And, uh, of course, being on the pitch and running behind Ricky Villa and seeing that weaving run and scoring the winning goal was magic. And it, yeah. it's, it summed up football because um, on the first game, Ricky Villa was substituted. And I can remember 
him dejectedly walking around the perimeter of Wembley Stadium, remembering the tunnel was at one end of the pitch, the old Wembley. Uh, and here he was on the replay, scoring the winner, totally elated. Um, and so th that was really, I mean, it was, you know, you got the medal, you, you, you sort of, it goes very quickly. It came very early in my career. But that same year, I was promoted to the FIFA international panel and uh, was invited to referee on, as a guest referee on the North American Soccer League. And my employers were going to make me a director and said, right, OK, we'll give you a sabbatical. So I spent eight weeks uh, refereeing in the North American Soccer League, um, which was brilliant. You know, I mean, I traveled America and Canada. You know, one one week you'd be in, uh, you know, in Florida. The next week you'd be in Vancouver, maybe Toronto, maybe Portland, New York, and it was a completely different game. Um, you know, I can I can remember sort of my first game being taken to uh, the game at, at Fort sorry at Tampa Bay Rowdies against Fort Lauderdale, which was a a local derby and driven to the ground in a police car and um, oh. and we got to the we got to the entrance of the ground and then through the ground down into the bottom of the stadium and then up and out onto the center of the field with in the police car and i've said to this guy <laughs> the policeman by the way was a, an assistant referee and i said to him what's going on you know uh, and he goes listen get out of the car and just wave. And I was in my kit, which I, I didn't know that this was a procedure. So I stood out, I got out of the car, and then there was this tonight referee, all the way from England, guest referee, Keith Hackett, like a little bit like the boxing. And, <laughs> uh, and there were other things, you know. I mean, I loved it. I loved the, the entertainment bit, but I was... I was learning a lot because there were a lot of top quality, world-class players earning a lot of money towards the end of their career in, in that competition. Rodney Marsh, uh, you know, Gordon Hill, uh, Beckenbauer, Pelly had just missed, best, um, so I'd missed. But, you know, I, I tell a story of I was refereeing... Uh, New York Cosmos versus Vancouver Whitecaps at Giant Stadium. And uh, I was staying in a hotel in, in uh, Manhattan, a lovely hotel. And I was then going to be taken by taxi to the ground. And on the way, we were delayed in Lincoln Tunnel. We were actually inside Lincoln Tunnel, blocked in traffic, not being able to get a signal. And uh, amazingly, we were, we were informed uh, that the game had been delayed on the radio in the taxi cab. So I was, I was able to relax. But running past the uh, taxi in the tunnel was uh, this, this guy. And the taxi driver jumped out. There was an exchange of words. And then sat next to me was Carlos Alberto, who was 
who a few years <laughs> a few years earlier had lifted the World Cup. Uh, I've got to tell you that 300 yards away from Giant Stadium, there's a massive car park, and uh, I jumped out of the cab and walked across the car park, not wanting to get out of that cab with Carlos Alberto getting out the other side of it. Uh, I don't think that would have been good, but lots, lots of uh, great memories going to uh, the States. That's amazing. Mm. Yeah, I was going to to ask you, um, you mentioned the um, refing the, the 100th FA Cup final, and you mentioned that it was um, kind of close to the beginning of your career. And we see often nowadays that refereeing the FA Cup final uh, tends to be regarded as the pinnacle of refs' careers. Like we saw um, just the last FA Cup final gone by, which is behind closed doors. And for that reason, they decided to uh, appoint Anthony Taylor for his second time, the first time a ref has ever you know, refereed an FA Cup twice because uh, they, they, the PGMOL or the FA or whoever decided thought that... Um, it should be a moment that the referee's family and friends will get to see him, you know, refing. But because it was so um, close to the beginning of your career, do you think it? Do you still regard it as the pinnacle of your 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 career, or do you think maybe there were there were better things to come after that? I th- I think that uh, for an English referee, I think refereeing the cup final is uh, is for me the pinnacle. Uh, you know, I mean, not for the referees that I coach, like Clattenburg and, and Webb and, and others, uh, because uh, you knew that under the modern era uh, that they had a better chance of refereeing a World Cup, a World Cup final, um, because of the fairness in the system, whereas in my era, tended to be very political. Uh did they want a strong referee? Because I was regarded as a strong referee for their for their World Cup. Um, you know, who, we never know that. But but ultimately, for me, it was the cup final. Um, but then I was lucky because there are lots of you know. If if you walk walk out at uh, in Bernabeu Stadium, you know, um, it's a, it's it, it is like a bull ring. The atmosphere is electric. It's electric. It's different. Um, you know, I, I walked out in Azteca in Mexico City with 120,000 spectators. Wow. So, um, again, a different atmosphere. I, I refereed um, Gdansk versus Juve. Uh, this was at, at the height of an uprising, towards the end of the uprising. Um and uh, solidarity in Poland was growing, uh, shipyard strikes, uh, Russia threatening the president, Jaruzelski, that I think it was Jaruzelski, uh, that they would uh, take over the country. And all of a sudden, the English referees appointed this game, and <laughs> it, it looked as though the, the Polish government at that time wouldn't allow me in. And FIFA said, Mr. Hackett's going in. UEFA said, Mr. Hackett's going in. And so I arrived in Warsaw, uh, shown to a hotel. And and then I said, look, gentlemen, it's a lovely hotel, but I have to tell you that I can't stay here. And they've gone, what? I said, the game is in Gdansk. Ah, 
it's safer to be in Warsaw. And I go, no, I'm sorry. UEFA regulations are that the teams and the referee have to be in the uh, city of the game 24 hours before kickoff. And I think that's even mandatory today. So I can tell you, they said initially there were no flights. And I said, well, okay, then you'll drive us there. They said, it's quite a way. And I go, well, we'll set off now. Um, and we walked to the airport uh, because I had two linesmen with me. And <laughs> this airplane was out of a museum. And it, 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 uh, it took off. Uh, I can tell you it was, the, it was like being on a ride at Blackpool. It, was, it, was, uh, it kept bobbing up and down. And I kept, eventually, the pilot spoke English, and I'm sat alongside him because this is like a six-seater aircraft. And I'm sat alongside him, and I, I, I sort of said to him, shouted to him, why, why we go up and down, please? He goes... I need to see where I'm going. So it was, <laughs> it was following the road. Um, I met uh, Lech Valencia, who was the head of solidarity. Um, I was told that, you know, we, we were driving from the ground, having done the 10 o'clock inspection, and it suddenly deviated the car. And the guy said to us, look, Lech Valencia wants to meet you. And, I met Valencia, uh, Valencia and had a conversation. Little did I know he'd become the president of the country. I said to him, was he going to the game? And he went, which, <laughs> which I took no. Uh, but during the course of the game, you can look at the records because during the course of this game, the ball went out of play. And I'm wanting the ball back. Juve are wanting the ball back. When the spectators parted and started shouting solidarity and there was like Valencia in the middle it was um, it was it was a crazy experience and then you know I used to go into the eastern bloc countries a lot refereeing Russia Czechoslovakia Hungary uh, East Germany um, Romania and uh, you know these were uh, these these were areas where you know, the politics were different and you had to be careful as an individual. Um, always treated very professionally. And I can remember, you know, refereeing on unification night, um, East, uh, a team from East Germany and West Germany. Um, we were in Chemnitz, uh, Karl Marx Stadt, the, the, the city's called. And we took, a, we took a car and we drove to the wall. So there I was. I'd refereed a football match and I was watching people stand on the wall, knocking it down. It was quite a, wow. a magical experience, given that, you know, on one occasion, I was refereeing East Germany v Switzerland in a European game. And uh, I flew into West Berlin and then was taken by the Football Federation car in West Berlin to Checkpoint Charlie. Get out the car and you walk through Checkpoint Charlie to get to the other end. And, you, you know, there's a fear factor in that. Mm. Uh, and it, it was quite interesting because the other side was 
a brilliantly speaking English guy, uh, obviously a East German who could speak brilliant English. And you could see the, the bullet marks on the wall. And uh, it was quite interesting because then people had, you know, that area, people had, had been killed trying to escape mm. from east to west. It was so the wall coming down. So it, it's not always about football. Um, yeah, that's amazing. And, and so, you know, um, the Olympic Games in 88, um, great experience. I, I was able to sit in the stadium and watch the very top athletes <clears throat> sit with the coaches. And then I suddenly realized that how amateur refereeing was, even though I was <laughs> operating in a professional environment. You know, the, 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 the nutritionalist, you know, I sat alongside a, a Kenyan coach who was telling me to the second, the laps in a 10,000 meter race that they would run. I was just, just incredible. Uh, the preparation. You know, I sailed into a game, refereed the football match, came home, went to work, you know, and there were pressures in that. Um, let me tell you, serious pressures where, you know, I got to put in a shift uh, for work, even though I was a, a sales manager or even when I was sales director. Um, so sometimes I'd be in the office at 6, 6.30, to enable me to leave the office at three to get to a football match. And, wow. and, and so there were those pressures. I, I, was ref, I was appointed to referee New Zealand versus Australia, you know, in a World Cup game qualifier. And uh, I went to uh, referee the match. It was, we'd probably say, it, it was semi-professional level, really. <laughs> but but um, I can remember coming off the field and there was a phone call waiting and uh, it was to tell me that uh, I'd been suspended for taking leave without permission, even though I had a letter uh, saying holidays. So, so there were pressures on availability of time and, and being employed. And wow. so, you know, uh, Olympic Games was incredible. I refereed West Germany versus Brazil, uh, Russia, America. Um, great experiences. You know, I, I, I'd been informed by Seth Blatter that I was refereeing the final of the Olympic Games, and I was really looking forward to that. And then uh, Germany and Brazil came together, uh, and Haviland, who was Brazilian and was president of FIFA, decided that uh, he wanted me to referee that game. And that's that, that that's how FIFA was run at that time. Mm. So I was I called to the Camino Royale in Mexico in in uh, the city and, 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 and told, look, um, we have a bigger match than the final and you're going to referee this. So that's that's what happened. But nonetheless, it was it was a terrific match. So, that's amazing so those are the you know the games I mean the, the fabulous experience as referee you learn a lot a referee never stops learning every game is a challenge uh, and you know players in the, those 
seventies, eighties, nineties. They were tough players. There were a lot of you know. You had Wimbledon. You knew you'd got a job on your hands. Everybody in the media was concentrating on Vinnie Jones, and I was concentrating on Larry Sanchez because he was the hitman. You know, you got Dennis Wise <laughs> and others, but you learned that he was the subtle one. He would do it off the ball. Yeah. Without without your thinking. So the idea was you learn to keep one eye on Laurie Sanchez. Good player. Don't get me wrong. With <laughs> uh, with Vinnie Jones, you just got a load of banter. And they, they were, mm-hmm. you know, and Harry Bassett, who I got to know when he took over Sheffield United, much better, uh, would give you the banter. But there was a camaraderie in their style of play. And and that was the differential that you got. And of course, unlike the modern game where you might have, I think there was a period where uh, Michael Oliver refereed last season or the season before, he had Tottenham seven times in a season. The the maximum we would get is three in my era. And of course, you, Anthony Taylor, if we take Anthony Taylor, who refereed this weekend, Manchester United game, he lives in Altrincham, mm. so he's Greater Manchester, and he's an Altrincham fan. I'm not questioning his integrity, but he is an Altrincham fan. But that wouldn't happen in my day. As a, as a Sheffield-born referee, I wouldn't be allowed to referee unless it was a testimonial. I wouldn't be allowed to referee the Sheffield clubs, mm. and uh, and they would also take the county in that. So I think during my career, I only refereed Leeds United a couple of times. And uh, and I think one of those was against Middlesbrough because he regarded as two Yorkshire clubs. Whereas now I think you get referees that that side of things uh, is less less of a problem, and I don't think they take that too much into account. Mm, that's really yeah. interesting. I find it amazing that you've been speaking for around forty-five minutes, and we've not really kind of covered anything about what it's like being the man in the middle at all like during the games it's all about the kind of culture and the experiences around which I find fascinating I mean being in the middle um, I mean look I think more move towards a little bit to the PGMOL and try and link the two because when I was an active referee we had to be fit right we took an annual fitness test that's all and uh, what I think was really important was that I had to be fit and I prided myself being, on, being fit. So training was important. And, and a lot of it was, was really on the basis of uh, the amount of effort that you put in. Games came two, three times a week, but you still had to put the fitness levels in. When I became boss of the PGMOL, uh, I, I took that to a different level because the first bit was to say, right, I'm going to bring in a sports scientist. So I brought a guy in called Matt Weston, a qualified, uh, fully accredited sports scientist. And the, the referees then started a regime. We sat down, Matt and I, and we said, right, we're going to make a lifestyle change. The game was changing. In my day, it was endurance. You know, 
long balls, a lot of running, but backwards and forwards. With uh, the modern game, and certainly when the pass-back rule came in, we were now involved in uh, ensuring that it became explosive sprinting. Right. So the training regimes were tough. Uh, referees were put through it. I introduced the polar heart monitor because we could measure very accurately the distances and speed platforms. But when they were away, because they did four training sessions a week and the games, we could also measure that in terms of their training. So they would have a training plan for whatever day, and they would that would be measured. The Polar Heart Monitor would download and capture that information. Uh, we would uh, we brought in a nutritionist to start saying right, okay, body shape was important. So all those things came into that regime, and uh, and therefore the the change initially was to say right, okay, we're going to make you fitter, we're going to make you more mobile, and we're going to have a performance analysis system. Um, that's going to measure very accurately what you're doing during the game. And uh, I can remember going to Bolton to see Sam Allardyce, and I saw a product called Prozo. It was it was produced in Leeds. It it was an animation, but it 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 told you everything that individual player was doing, the speeds and everything. And uh, and I spent a, about a year one day a month, uh, going to ProZone, talking to the then owners to create ProZone Referee. So we had a detailed analysis of each individual referee. We could tell when he was fatiguing by his recovery rates. And then, of course, I, um, I, went, I was invited to... Uh, I wanted to get to know more about rugby referees, rugby union or rugby league. And so I, I watched very carefully rugby union. I eventually went to Twickenham and bought Ref Link, listened into the referees, came away and said, we're going to have those. We're going to introduce the communication kits. And I spent £350,000 of Premier League money to introduce communication kits. I didn't ask UEFA, I didn't ask FIFA, I just introduced them. And, uh, you know, it, 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 uh, it was funny because we had problems at Chelsea, uh, believe it or not, because <laughs> during those early years or months, uh, you'd often get a referee. I'd go there and watch the referee. And you'd often see the referee suddenly stunned a little bit, looking around and... The reason for that was partway through the game, he might get uh, interference on his communication kit, which was, you know, and I was able to listen in, by the way. So all of a sudden you've got, could we have a taxi, please, to Kensington, from Kensington High Street to Oxford Circus? <laughs> so we had to work on encrypting it. So the communication kits were introduced. Um, and accountability, because mm. up to up to then, uh, I said, "Look, okay, we're we're 
you know. I struggled to convince before the PGMOL was formed. I, I sort of had meetings with Sir Dave Richards, who was chairman of the Premier League, saying, look, we should, you should introduce professional referee and managed to persuade them to do that. On the basis of availability, on the basis that the game was getting quicker, all that went. And I mean, in the period that I was in office uh, at the PGMOL, the speed of the game went up by 40%. So we suddenly then had referees averaging 11,500 metres per game. Uh, we, we could measure it. So what I wanted to do in refereeing was, was take perception and convert perception to reality. Because around refereeing, it's all perception, where it has to be reality. So when somebody said he's not fit, like Alex Ferguson once did regarding Alan Wiley, mm. I could say to Wiley, just a minute, his distance covered in the game is number three in covering all the 22 players, substitutes. He's number three on distance covered. On sprint profiles, he's also in the top three. He's covered over a 1,000 metres at seven metres per second. And, of course, Alex Ferguson, it doesn't look right. It doesn't look fit. And I've got, well, there's the statistics <laughs> that prove that he is fit. So that aspect, I think, uh, improved. Mm. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, when we... I started measuring our referee profiles against Kalina, who I regarded, Pierre-Luigi Kalina, I regarded as the yeah. best referee in the world. So I, I took some of, when he came to England, I had ProZone and filmed him. So we analysed him as a referee. And what we found out was that our referees were averaging, say, 25 sprints in a game. Kalina was doing 50 sprints in a game. And... Is box to box, penalty area to penalty area. It was eleven seconds, and that's that's what that's what Webb and Clattenburg comfortably achieved. Halsey was Halsey. Mark Halsey would do about fourteen thousand meters in a game. I often had to say to him, "You need to slow down and concentrate on your referee." <laughs> but uh, so in that in that period. We, we then had accountability because That's really, really interesting. Because what I had to do was I had to say, like I, I decided I'd be the twentieth, twenty-first manager in the Premier League in a sense, mm. uh, and so my appointment process was: if you're refereeing well and you're in form, you'd get games. Um, 10, I had 10 Premier League games, but what I also had was I had a minimum of five Football League games. And the reason for that was I needed that for recovery. So if I got a referee injured, he wasn't coming back straight into the Premier League. Right. He, he might do a, a Division 2 game or a Division 4 when he, or Division 3. So you use that uh, linkage. But then there were others who I said to them, I had to sit across and say, look, I'm sorry, you're not, you're not good enough for the elite level. You're a good championship referee, but unfortunately you're not a very good Premier League referee. 
and and those referees were moved on. Some lost the jobs. So uh, because I'm demanding, and and mm. you probably read what I write. Um, I say it as it is, and I upset referees. Do you know, I mean, look, we know in law, law supports this weekend Anthony Taylor's dismissal of Martial. But we're dealing at the very elite level here. And we saw a reaction by a Spurs player that is unacceptable. Mm. So most people would say, well, if you're going to give one red, you've got to give two. If you follow the law, it's, it's easy to dismiss a player. But, but it seemed to me that the slap which shouldn't have taken place was hardly a slap. And the elbow in the face committed by the player who decided then to, to go down as though he's shot. What we have to do in refereeing is be realistic and say, what really would have been the best outcome in this situation? The best outcome for the game was yeah, to actually mm-hmm. Anthony Taylor to get both players out of the scene and say to them quite clearly, gentlemen, this is unacceptable. I want an improvement. Not, I'm going to send you off, I'm going to yell a card, I want an improvement. And therefore, for me, that situation, referee's right in law, every referee would say he's right. What I'm saying is, we're dealing with an event where I would like him to have used his management expertise, which he's undoubtedly got, to have diffused that situation. Because it was made into a big scene when it was not. But having said that, I'm then saying Anthony Taylor missed the challenge by Luke Shaw that was a red card. Mm. So when when you're dealing with referees and you're coaching referees at the top, you have to be demanding. So you referee. Right, I'm going to give you some tips. As a referee, please, please. Right. the first thing is you need to get fitter. Mm. It's no good being fit and then not putting in the effort on the pitch. So you want to measure how close you are because proximity to play will sell your decisions. It takes doubt that players have out of their mind because you're literally standing alongside them. You're in their zone. So that's the first thing. Proactive refereeing is better than reactive refereeing. And so therefore, there's a step process that we talk about, filming and refereeing, the quiet word. Mm, let's, yes. let's, let's bring the players together. So I talk about the triangle. Never call a player directly to you. If you're at A and I'm at B, as we're sitting here, looking at you, facing each other, I want you to join me at the C, other end of the triangle. Come and join me. It reduces confrontation. If you say, come here, and you don't make that first step, the, the player has every right to say, I'm not, I'm not coming, and then you've created a problem. So it's basic referee. I would never say to a player, the next time you're going to do that, you've got to be cautioned. Or the next time you're going to do that, I'm going to give you a red card. 
Why, why tell him? Why tell the player what you're going to do? Because you then close off your options. Why don't you say to that player, I want an improvement? It leaves everything open. Because you've not threatened him, but you've made the point that you want an improvement. And then if you don't get it and you caution him and he moans, you say, look, I did ask you for an improvement in your behaviour. Hmm. Use the captains. All too often, I watch referees and they fail to use the whistle. You know, and, and I suddenly think, you know, the whistle shortens the distance that you cover. Because we do get caught out of, time, out of distance, you know. We do get caught out of position. And the best referees are the ones that recover quickly by putting in an explosive sprint. Explosive sprint is, you know, maybe over three yards, four yards. It, it, it's that type of sprint. So I think there are lots of things in refereeing that can make you a better referee. Uh, here's another tip. Some of our referees, when I was in charge, Graham Paul, Graham Barber, uh, would, would have a 10-minute block refereeing style. So they, they actually said, right, okay, I've got my two assistant referees. I'm going to operate in 10-minute blocks. And so we start with a pretty, not suppressive style, but we're, we're going to be tight in our control mechanisms. And so that's how they start the game. That's the foul I'm giving it. You know, I'm not going to play an advantage in the defensive third or even the middle third. I'm just going to blow and give the free kick to make certain that I get some discipline into the game. After the first 10 minutes, he then communicates with his lines, his assistants, and he can say, I'm keeping it tight, or we're going to free it up a bit. I'm going to, be, I'm going to play advantage. I'm going to keep drift out a little bit, leave a bit of freedom. And, and, and then as you come towards the half-time period, you're going to tighten up again. And, of course, what I also see in referees is a failure when a substitution takes place to understand that a tactical change can impact on their refereeing. And so we need to do our own work more. We need to understand the teams. Oh, is, the, is it a top of the table or is it bottom of the table? You know, is it, is it a local derby? Is it, are they going for promotion? Whatever. You need to understand the teams that you're refereeing. And, yeah. You don't carry a black book, but you, you have preparation that says, these are the players I've got to keep an eye on, whoever they are. And then the other thing is um, you, you keep a diary. And yes. so that diary says, this is the game. This is what I had to eat before the game. How many hours? Because immediately you finish refereeing, you're now preparing for the next game. So you've got to be eating. So you, if that's Jaffa cakes, you know, if that's if that's jelly babies with creatine that helps the muscles and, and various other things, that's the first thing you do when you come off at a football match. You should grab some jelly babies and start eating them, because the creatine in helps recovery. Have a sandwich. 
don't drive home for two hours or one hour and with nothing to eat. Yeah. Make certain, make certain that you know you you've got the liquid into you as well. So preparation, a professional approach, uh, an ability to understand in your diary the games that you've had and whether you perform well in your opinion and mark yourself you know fitness control of the game application laws it's not a full assessment but it's a self-assessment i'll send you one if you want and it's it, it covers various points but so what I'm trying to give you is an insight in that a referee has to be like a player. But unlike a player who is managed, the player is managed by whoever it is. If it's Lampard with Chelsea players, he's, he's giving the training regimes through his staff. He's telling when to eat, what to eat, and all that goes with it, right? He's assessing performance. And that's no different for referees, but yourself almost like self-employed and therefore you've got to do it yourself because nobody will do it and you know when you start getting assessments um and i worry about assessors you know assessing for me is an important aspect because an assessor is more than a guy who marks your performance an assessor is a coach mm. and 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 he puts balance into it you know, you come off disappointed, the game's not gone well, you could have done better, and the world's come to an end. And a guy walks in and you think, oh, it's going to absolutely happen. And he puts his head down and says, listen, the majority of what you did was right. Now, talk me through this particular incident. And then he'll try to squeeze out of you, is it, the, how you what your thinking was, how you came to that decision. Did you have a good view? Was it communicated well if you've got assistant referees? You know, what's the, what's the point in, uh, you know, what's the point in striding out? I watched the referee at the weekend, and he was striding out 9.15, 10 yards, now near the halfway line. And I'm going, what's the point in that? You don't have to do that. You've got to be down the field, getting your position up. Use your whistle. Get him back. Short bursts on the whistle. Come back on your bike. So there are, there are lots of aspects in, in refereeing whereby the assessor can help you. Now, what I want you to do if you're assessed is read it on its own initially, but don't, don't dwell on it because what you want is about six of them. And you lay them out on your on your dining table or your office desk, and you go, what do you consider to be the, the real positives in this assessment? Highlight them. And then what are the negatives? And learn from them. Look, let me show you something. Okay. I'm not a, I'm not a souvenir hunter, but these are all my assessments. Wow! Right, I've got every one. Somebody had the grace to to give me an assessment. Burnley, Liverpool, Forest, League Division One. 
And so in that sense, it says throughout those fights, you applied the laws of the game correctly as you also correctly recognised players' intent. All incidents were dealt with as quickly. Not a lot. But so what these have done is I passed this information from all these assessors to young referees because I use that in my coaching. Because in here, they'll say, you know, you were sleepy or you weren't up with play or, you know, you, you, I never got you fatigued, but maybe I got application of law. My biggest down, downside was you played too much advantage. So you've got six assessments. You mark the positives and then you mark what you see as negatives in that assessment. You know, which says proximity to play uh, could have been better. Uh, sprinting could have been quicker. And all of a sudden, sometimes assessors will not tell you what they want to get over. But six assessments with those highlights will suddenly give you a picture of saying, ah, oh, this is what I've got to do. Mm -hmm. and, and often... Uh, referees have to understand that they're salesmen. What they've got to do is they're actually conveying products that they're selling. That's a free kick, that's a throw-in, that's a goal kick, whatever. So communication is part of refereeing is important. So with the PGMOL, all of a sudden we were we were uh, fitter, more mobile, analysed in much more detail. We had a promotion and relegation operating and we had a succession plan. So we were bringing through succession planning as being part of the important bit. So refereeing is, I, I say to referees that the game is about players and not referees. And therefore, you go in, you go in with that mentality of saying, "I want to prevent players getting sent off. I want to prevent players disputing with each other. I've got to be the guy that's the arbiter to stop all that." And the voice can actually prevent a lot. There's nothing to stop you shouting, "Hey, hey, watch it! Don't do that." And then, of course, you learn from the problems that you've experienced. Let me give you an example. Uh, sometime way back, I had uh, Manchester United against Arsenal, which became like the Battle of Old Trafford. Mm, uh, yeah. 21 players having a go at each other. Uh, a little bit handbags, some a bit stronger. But as I looked on, blew the whistle and piled in, then came away, I'm thinking to myself, which one do I send off? Yeah. Because I've now got to be fair and honest to myself and fair and honest to the players. 21 players were involved in that role. And, and if you send two off, it's not enough. Send three off, it's not enough. Four, it's not enough. So I decided I'm not sending anybody off. 
his law gets sorted in a tribunal coming up. And I thought that, and I knew, and that was the case. So both teams were deducted points. But the protocol from that was I sat down and said, how could I have dealt with that better? And immediately, the first thing is, I need my assistant referees close by. So the, the, the criteria for a mass confrontation is that, first of all, the referee blows his whistle as strong and hard as he can. As he moves to the scene, he doesn't pile in, but if he can prevent, that's what he's there for. One assistant comes in quickly with him, so he's on the outer shape of the mass confrontation. And the other assistant comes in, designated in your pre-match instructions, he's going to watch the runners. And then you go to a process. The process having calmed down is referee applies reds. He then asks his assistants, are there any reds? If there are, he applies another red. He then applies his yellows, and he then says, if there are any yellows from you, the assistants, I'll apply them. But what you do is if you have a confrontation between two players, you never send them off at the same time. And you always send the away team player off first. Let him get off, almost off, before you send the second one. And that reduces conflict and ensures they don't think. But then what you say to your fourth official is, if I have a mass confrontation, I'm going to send more than one player off. Right? This is what I will do. What I want you to do is, near the touchline, monitor those players coming off. And that's, that's the criteria. And if you go on YouTube and look at the 96 Carling Cup final that Howard Webb refereed between Chelsea and Arsenal, mm. where three players were sent off between 90 and 96 minutes, right? You'll see how Webb applied that criteria. And how he sent two off, and then his assistant informed him that, he, that there was a, another player who needed to go. Mm. And by the way, Mourinho and Wenger were also on the pitch and they got I think they got fined fifty grand. Yeah. But but the principle of what had happened to me at Old Trafford in ninety six or whatever, I think no, before then, came into operation with Webb in this in this Carling Cup final. Mm. So you can always learn uh, in those situations. That's so interesting. Really, really interesting. I think it's fantastic advice, not just for me, but not just for even like budding refs or anything, but for people in terms of how they observe the game and how they um, view a ref and things, because it's, I think it's really interesting. Um, you know, when I first uh, trained as a ref and I first um, started refing, you know, when I'm watching football on TV, when I'm watching football in a stadium, I watch it completely differently now, right? Um, and I think hearing this this insight can really change how you view it, um, which, which is just it's just really fascinating. I find it. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for, for that advice. It's, it's amazing. I, I wanted to um, pick your brains on 
VAR, obviously, we had to mention it at some point. Um, it's been for around for a while now, um, but obviously you've still got lots of people complaining about it, saying we're better without it, stuff like this. Personally, I've never actually met a single ref who, who isn't in favour of VAR. I think pretty much all refs would be in agreement that um, this kind of resource to help you as a referee improve your decisions is always going to be welcomed but perhaps the way they've implemented it the Premier League especially what are your thoughts on, on that having brought in polar heart monitors a professional tracking system of performance analysis communication kits and then standing up at the Premier League meeting shareholders meeting and saying I want goal line technology and then spending time with Orkai uh, at Fulham, uh, going to Fulham's Motspur Park, uh, where Orkai were putting it through its paces. Uh, we spent a year to meet the criteria of, of getting an accurate decision to about 99.9% accurate um, to actually determine the balls over the line. And... It's a very successful uh, product that cuts away an incident involving Manchester United and Tottenham, where I was then PGMOL boss, and the ball dropped over the goal line by Roy Carroll. I could see from the stand, was easily in, but Mark Clattenburg standing by the halfway line. Uh, not aware, or, or should I say, not expecting a, a, a snapshot on goal. And as assistant referee, who was in line with the secondary most defender, almost by the halfway line, we had a goal. So that's why I stood up and said we needed goal line technology, and, and that has proven to be hugely successful. Um, VAR. When you have a minimum 22 cameras, scrutinising every Premier League game, and sometimes in excess of that, then there needs to be some balance. And the referee, no matter how fit and how well you prepare that referee, um, is going to make uh, errors. And when you, when you actually analyse the errors of a human being, it's because he doesn't see. And remember, the process of a referee is very clear. You see... You recognise, you think, and you act. That's just like you did driving your car. You're watching people coming off the pavement. You're watching whether yeah. it's right. You're taking in all the signals. So the referee's the same. Better, better referees see things quicker uh, because they develop their cognitive skills. So they're building up in, in their knowledge factor what are the chances given this situation? And the more experience you gain, then these things don't come as a surprise. You deal with them. So VAR is an absolute must for the modern referee because the 22 cameras, one of them or more, exposes errors. Mm. Now, we, now we talk about VAR uh, application. And now it's been implemented. Mike Riley and the PGMOL and the Premier League 
should really be disappointed that they took the view that they would not use the pitch side monitor. Yeah. Uh, that was a massive error because you could see that it always needed to be that the referee has ownership of the decision. Because let me tell you, when referees made mistakes when I was the boss, the following week they may not get a game. Because one, I didn't want them to repeat it. Two, they needed some operational advice. So yeah, that's the toughness. That's the tough bit. Mm -hmm. But that's no no different when Frank Lampard has a number nine who's missing yeah. the, the net. He's going to change that number nine. That's what I always say to people who complain. You know, your players are all making mistakes. Refs are allowed to make mistakes. It's just human, yeah. you know. But, but what you've got to do is try and keep those errors to a, a minimum. And VAR reduces that error. Yeah. Providing, as we're already seeing, the referee using the pitch side monitor. The disappointment is, if you look at what they do, is they actually stick with the, the original decision. So I'm waiting for the referee to go to the pitch side monitor, review it, come back and say, I got that one wrong. Now, we have seen that on one occasion, and I think that was John Moss, who I think issued a red card, went to the monitor, viewed it, came back, and brilliantly yeah. changed it to yellow, and we got the right outcome. So here's a referee that I criticise every week because he's not a fit referee in terms of his movement around the field of play. Uh, just like Simon Hooper, who had a good game at the weekend, but equally, it gets detached from play, and that's when the level of exposure comes. Don't wait for the problem. He's going to get the problem because he's slow off the mark. So what we have to do is we have to use VAI in the way that it's meant to be, and that is it's a, a tool for the referee, not for a guy at Stockley Park. That's the first thing. The Stockley Park guy should say, you missed it. So that's the first thing. So the second thing is, <clears throat> does it have to be a referee as a VAR operator? Mm. Does it have to be a referee? And I think not. Because, look, I can remember going to the Premier League and saying, I'm going to change things. And he went, what? What are you going to do now? I want you to have a panel of observers. What? Observers. But you've got assessors. And I go, assessors are former referees or assistant referees, and they're observing and assessing. They're assessing the referee's performance. I now want former managers, former players, to be delegates at the match. You benefit, first of all, if anything goes wrong with a match. But what I want is them to critique and report on the referee's performances. I want them to come into the dressing room pre-match, listen to the pre-match instructions. They can come in at the end of the match and critique the referee along with the assessor. Because then when they meet the manager, the manager's no longer going to mark the referee. Alex Ferguson's not going to give a guy no out of ten. I'm going to have a former player manager who can talk to Alex Ferguson, whoever, and then come to a mark. In the same way, I might suggest that VAR 
could be operated by players or former managers. Because if they say, I think that's a foul, they'll know what a foul is because they've invariably committed those acts mm. and they've been a long time in football. They may not concentrate on positioning, but they are going to say, honestly, you know, that's a penalty kick. You need to come in. And what we found with the match delegates is that often they will say to the referee, you're a bit soft with that player. Why don't you grip him? Why don't you caution him? So if you listen to somebody like Kenny Hibbert, who played for Wolves, played at the highest level, and he's one of those assess- uh, observers, uh, and makes that comment, then the referee's going to listen. So VAR, why does me become a VAR operator? That's the first bit. Now we go on to the offside lines, which they're not using this mm-hmm. year. Have you noticed? Yeah. Because they were a complete mess and a joke. And the reason they were a joke was this. I work with goal line technology. Around each, around each goal, there are seven cameras. And we, to get a speed of decision and an accurate decision, we had to move those camera speeds from 50 frames per second to 500 frames per second. So those cameras are operating at 500 frames per second. And we're relying on offside decisions on camera speeds at 50 frames per second. But it's not a straight line. Yeah. You know what offside is. A player's not offside. If he's in an offside position, he's not committing an offence. So you've got, here's the guy. You've got to know when he's kicking the ball. You've got to know generally the direction it's travelling. And you've got to understand the point of where it, when it arrives. And in between times, you've got frames at 50 frames per second. So as it arrives and he's making the decision, I reckon you can pick one of four frames. Mm. And therefore, there's an element of manipulation on offsides, what he wants to show. So for me, completely undermined and started a dialogue of a toe offside, which was unnecessary because the law's always said that. The law, the law hadn't changed. It, it, you know, a toe is offside. The law changed to say mm. which part of the body could be declared offside. Now, I think the law's an ass. In the same way that when, when we look at uh, incidents with VAR under slow motion, there's a complete mm. unfairness of the, to the yeah. referee. It's completely unfair. They should never go there because, you know, uh, it can actually make a challenge look a lot worse than it is. It can make an action or non-action um, look different, you know. And so that whole aspect of VAR is something where that referee, with all of his experience, needs to judge whether that challenge by Luke Shaw, you know, was a red card offence. So he missed it. Or did he say, I don't want to send, I've already sent one off. I know the pressures of sending two players off. 
did he say that? Or did he actually think that that was acceptable? Because I'm telling you, in the laws of the game, that's an excessive force challenge that demands a red card. So today or tomorrow, if I'd been in charge of the PGMOL, I would now be critiquing that. And look, this isn't about me being a clever dick because I'd have, I've got a team of coaches that actually say, right, okay, go and talk to that referee and get his view on this decision. And then the referees would come together as, he, as we used to and argue it through. And I mean argue it through. Because incidents, you put them on the screen and you say to the referee, talk us through this. And then you'll get another referee saying, well, you weren't up with play. You were out of position. You didn't see what we see. And then you'd say to the referee, given now what you've seen, what would you do? Mm. And so that's, that's a teaching experience for the individual referee in critiquing this, this incident. But it's also a discussion point and a workshop learning point to discuss uh, as a group of referees. So you're actually killing lots of stones with one incident. Mm. So we now we now go to handball, don't we? That's and, the next question, yeah. And, and and the abject nonsense. First of all, let me tell you. Yeah. David Ellery is the technical director of the IFAB. Mm. Experienced referee. Um who was charged with reviewing the laws of the game and trying and simplifying. I think his introduction of the sin bin has been the pinnacle of his achievement. I mm. think the sin bin is a wonderful tool that, sh yeah. that should come in to the professional game. I have no doubts about that. So... On one side, I'm saying, well done, Mr. Ellery. On handball, I'm saying to him here and now, what you're doing is a disaster. Mm. First of all, why do you penalize uh, an accidental handball? Why is there a need to penalize it's never been an like that? Well, where, why do you treat one set of players differently to another set of players in the game. Now, you and I know that uh, the goalkeeper's always been treated differently. The laws have always, over time, going back to 1857 and beyond, or 1857 coming this way, uh, have always been part of the law. And the goalkeeper's been treated differently. So for me, last season, excellent land ball was a disaster. The worst law change that I've ever seen. They've tried to tidy up the mess by actually saying, right, the new change in law is that if he scores directly from an excellent land ball, goes in, disallowed. If it immediately goes to a colleague, who's denied a goal-scoring opportunity, 
is disallowed. Um, it says that the guy who had accidental handles on the wing and it, there's three or four moves, he's not penalised anymore. So that's that's let me say that that's a good good part of the change. But what he fails to understand is that the public, the fans, don't make that difference. He should stand at the side of a pitch on a on a Sunday morning and listen to the screams that young referees are having to put up with every time, the, every time the ball goes near a defender. There's no, there's no connection now between law changes when they're made, which are made for the, to suit the professional game, the elite level of the game, and they're forgetting about grassroots level and the interpretation and application of that particular law. So, because if I'm refereeing at grassroots level, right, not only do I not have VAR, I often don't even have assistance, right? Or I don't have my own assistance. I don't have anyone to assist me. It's just it's just me. And the same goes for most of grassroots football. Um so so when when you have these these claims that it states in the law accident, how how am I supposed to see that? Well, the the, the scenario is that it's a bad law. And now of course what I mean I mean, look, I've had arguments on social media because there's still a lot of, there's a lot of referees who, if the PGMOL say this is what's happening, they accept that that's how they're going to referee. They accept that, that as, the, as the, the elite end of the game, they should be knowledgeable and know how things are applied, laws are applied. Um, and I'm, you know, I saw the one at Southampton with David Coo, who's a competent referee, mm. growing in stature. Ball strikes the foot of an opponent and takes him by absolute surprise and hits the underside of his arm, which I would say to you, that it's a subjective point of view, and I know that his arm was in a natural position. That was never a penalty kick in a million years. In the same way, you take Dyer, who had his back to the ball. The distance travelled of the ball was a very short distance. And they're still sticking with the view that that's, that's a penalty kick. Mm. Well, I'd like them to referee in the local parks and give that. <laughs> and I, I hope that they get off the field. Because... No, but- you That's know what? Not... It's it's not even like they have to referee on the local box. All they have to do is scroll Twitter after after that happened, and then they'll have an easy decision to make. Yeah, I mean, so now they've they've made it worse for you. I I don't referee anymore. I just commentate on mm. on refereeing or write on refereeing. But see now what they've done is they've softened it. They've actually said we're going to have a softer approach. We're four weeks into the season in the Premier League, 40 games, and we're changing the interpretation of a law that they should have recognised when somebody sat around a desk and said, this is how we're going to interpret. They should have immediately said, we're not. And that's down to the boss of the PGMOL and the board of directors. Let me give you an example. When I was boss, we had uh, Sam Allardyce, again, manager of Bolton Wanderers, 
very intelligent guy, by the way. Uh, and and he put two. This was interfering with an opponent. And so what he said was, if I put two forwards on the goalpost and I go for goal, that's that's allowed in these written laws. And he did it. Uriah Rennie was the referee and he just blew and said offside and run away. Fortunately for all of us, because his actions were spot on. But what we did was, that happened on the Wednesday. By the Monday, we were talking to IFAB and saying, we don't care about this law, mate. We're not applying it in that way. We're outlawing this 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 particular tactic by, by some of the dice of Bolt Wanderers. And that happened. So the point I'm trying to make is that you, when law changes are made, you have to have a detailed knowledge of the law and how it's going to be applied. And you have to have a law written that isn't written round a table of, of so-called experts, but actually saying, look, trial it. Put it into a league and say, right, what we're going to do is we'll trial this, we'll try this proposed new law in this competition for a year and see how it operates. Well, that's what they've been doing with the Simbins, isn't it? Well, that's how they've developed the Simbin. Yeah. And that's why it's worked. Yeah. But what, what they had was, they had a guy at the FA, he retired uh, a few weeks ago, and he communicated how those things, how the, uh, the, the Simbin would be used. And, uh, and he was absolutely, did that brilliantly. So with handball, I mean, when I see somebody like Roy Hudson, like giving an outburst, I'm thinking, I can't believe it. Because I'm saying that, I'm saying that's never a penalty in a million years. And, and, and look, I don't, I no longer referee. And therefore, it's difficult to say, because nobody's supporting the referee here. The referee's got to give that decision because he's been told that's how to apply it. Yeah. It's and a deep problem. Yeah, there is. But it, but it doesn't go away. Let me give you an example. Many years ago, I was appointed to referee West Ham United versus Nottingham Forest. And uh, at Villa Park. And on the Thursday... This game was going to be played at the weekend. On the Thursday, two or three days before the game, all the pre all the football league referees are called into an hotel in Coventry. We sit there and up comes the guy from the FA saying, gentlemen, we've had a letter from FIFA and our interpretation of denial of an obvious goal scoring opportunity is wrong. We look at each other. And we go, we have been applying it, yeah, on the basis that the challenge has to be cynical. Because Dogzo was brought about from a cup file involving Willie Young 
I think, at Arsenal, bringing down a player who was just a few yards from goal. The sanction was a free kick, nothing else. And that brought to furore about the, this particular law. So, so on the Thursday, we as a group of referees, all 56 of us or 70-odd of us, I think it was 72 of us, were told we have to change. And it's no longer cynical, it's a foul. So Muggins Hackett walks out at Villa Park knowing that he's got to apply it if it should happen in a different way to the previous seasons it's been operating. And there old Tony Gale of West Ham brings down Gary Crosby of Forest, and off he goes. And I'll tell you, that was not a pleasant experience <laughs> because the players were not aware of that law change. The managers were not aware of it. The media was not aware of it. The fans were not aware of it. So, my disappointment in recent weeks is that nobody from the PGMOL has come out and discussed that particular law and its interpretation. What they do is, they wheel Dermot Gallagher out, who used to be an employee of mine, and, and he tells us his spin on things, which is the PGMOL spin. Look, mm. his salary is paid not by Sky, it's paid by PGMOL. Yeah. So his view is the PGML's view. And the PGML's view on life at times is nothing to do with a game of football. It's often, you know, the I mean, referee is I mean, look, always right. Well, he was working on beat, yeah, and, and that's not the case. I mean, look, you've got to be, look, I'm not questioning the integrity, but when somebody's watching a game and John Moss incorrectly shows a red card, which then Dermot in his capacity at BT on this particular evening is like justifying. I'm going, what? Mm. Justifying? It's never a red card in a million years. Like I'm going, what's happening here? And Dermot is going, hey, John Moss has made the correct decision here. And within a matter of two minutes from making that statement, John Moss has gone to the screen and gone, it's yellow. And I'm going like, so, and then he says, "Oh, maybe it was the correct decision." That does refereeing absolutely no good at all. Yeah, absolutely. Therefore, you know, if they'd have come out and said, "Look, um, Dyer's particular handball scenario is a difficult one," and currently our interpretation is this. And the law substantiates what we're saying. Then let's have an argument. But but the law doesn't. The law doesn't substantiate it. You know. I mean, it says, except for the above offences, it is not an offence if the ball touches a player's hand and arm directly from the player's own head or body. So do you remember that uh, Liverpool Leeds one? Yes. Yeah. The ball struck the side of the butt, the knee, Robin bounced Cole, up, yeah. bounced, yeah, bounced up, knitting. So they're justifying that's a penalty because they're justifying it on the one line in the in the law that talks about the body being unnaturally bigger. 
But when when we look at the context of that, unnaturally bigger is where the player makes. You know, we had one. We had Mark Elsey said deliberate wasn't it? Um, Mark Clattenburg said wrote in the Daily Mail that deliberate was no longer part of the world, the law, and that really worried me when I read that. Um, I mean, the law clearly says that deliberately moving the hand and arm towards the ball has to be part of the action. So they've now come out with this, what they're saying is a simplification, which is a, a, a move in the right direction. But the move in the right direction is to bend the law and start again and rewrite it. And, and, uh, and the 300 words that they've got in the law, Nyon, could be done in about 50. Mm. All it needs to say is deliberately handling the ball, right, to gain possession, to score a goal, to stop the ball passing, i.e. stopping a promising attack. That's all it needs to say, I think. That's off the top of my head. I could make that. I could spend another five minutes and clarify it much better. So I think those are the things that they need to uh, consider and look at. So they, they do make life more difficult for referees, and we are back. Yeah. We are back. We are back to that particular problem of uh, forgetting about the referee in the local park. And by the way, succession planning needs to be much better organised. I mean, I was really pleased that Darren England had a good game at the weekend, his first Premier League game, uh, given the fact that he had reached international standard as an assistant referee, a FIFA assistant referee, and then decided he wanted to become a referee and drop down the list, less earnings, to then go on to the Football League and then move up the ladder to become... Uh, a uh, Premier League referee. So I think there were one or two good performances in the weekend, which is quite pleasing. I mean, Simon Hooper, who I said last year, ought to be removed from the list, produced quite quite a good performance this weekend. Which, mm. but that's refereeing. Yeah. I thought Mike Dean was excellent actually as well in the in the Man City Leeds game. I, I, I was he. He missed the challenge in that game. He missed the challenge, but in terms of um, how everyone was talking about um, the the game being so entertaining, he was he was the main kind of contributor to that, allowing well, advantages and things. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it raises a point. The point is that a referee is a conductor, like the guy who does the orchestra. Yeah, he hasn't got, he hasn't got a bat; he's got a whistle and. Yeah, I mean, I rate Mike Dean very highly. He's not the arrogant guy that people think he is, although his body language does project that. <laughs> uh, so he did keep the game going. I do think he missed a red card. Uh, I think that challenge coming in late and high in the back of a player is one that really is out, should be outlawed. He missed it. VAR didn't come in. But did you notice this weekend... VAR went on strike. 
they went in they went into that room and said if we can avoid interfering we're going to avoid we're not going to we're not going to get involved and that's how it should be really so they they're saying it they've now got to make they've still got to stick to the fact that serious and obvious errors have to be where VAR comes in hmm. I think that's it really this has been yeah. a really really comprehensive discussion great to get your insight um, from all things yeah refereeing your career stuff nowadays we've covered touched a lot of bases I think it's fair to say yeah great um, yeah but thank you so much for joining Pleasure. Keith I really really enjoyed it thought it was fascinating anytime thanks and as I said at the top you can find us on all our social media platforms Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, check out our website with some fantastic articles. If you want to listen to this podcast, share it anywhere, Spotify, Deezer, Apple, Google, anywhere you can find it. Thanks once again, Keith. That was brilliant. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.